Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Gyms stand empty, yoga studios too, but a growing amount of exercise and stretching of both body and mind is going online. And changes that locked down populations are making now may reshape the wellness industry forever. And our obituaries editor looks back on the life of Michelle Roux, a decorated chef who took it as his mission to teach the British how to eat well. It nearly worked. First up, though, Yesterday evening, Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson was moved to intensive care, 10 days after testing positive for the coronavirus. He's the first head of a Western government to be hospitalized for COVID-19. The Prime Minister is not on a ventilator. Uh, He has received oxygen support. uh, And of course, one of the reasons for being in intensive care is to make sure that whatever support uh, the medical team consider to be appropriate can be provided. The deterioration of the Prime Minister's condition has unsettled British politics at a crucial moment. Unlike America, Britain has no formal system of succession. However, the administration has said that Dominic Robb, the Foreign Secretary, will stand in for Mr. Johnson where necessary. Mr. Robb gave an update last night. He's been receiving excellent care at St. Thomas's Hospital, and we'd like to take this opportunity as a government uh, to thank Uh, NHS staff up and down the country for all of their dedication, hard work and commitment in treating everyone who's been affected by this awful virus. The Prime Minister was last seen in public on Thursday evening, clapping in a show of support for the National Health Service and other key workers. In Britain, as in other countries, it's become a weekly ritual to make some noise to celebrate those on the front line of the pandemic. But in Brazil, such sounds have come to mean something else entirely. Residents have taken to banging pots and pans to protest against the federal government's handling of the crisis. So far, Brazil has recorded more than 12,000 cases of the disease, and the death toll is nearing 600. The health minister has warned that the country's health system may collapse by the end of the month. But the president, Jair Bolsonaro, has warned of hysteria, and he's railed against shutdowns, measures put in place by Brazil's local and state authorities. City and state governments have imposed isolation measures. Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro implemented full lockdowns when Brazil had a pretty small number of confirmed cases. Sarah Maslin is our Brazil correspondent, reporting from Sao Paulo. They've turned football stadiums into field hospitals, are trying to ramp up the production of ventilators and other medical supplies, and they're hiring hundreds of grave diggers. 
Universities and private labs are developing COVID tests. Companies are donating materials. The biggest brewery in Brazil is making hand sanitizer. So it seems like city and state authorities and businesses and so on seem to be pretty switched on to the risk. But the one person who seemed to be fairly flippant about it from the start is, is the president. All of this is despite, not because of the president, Jair Bolsonaro. From the very beginning, he's dismissed this disease, calling it a little sniffle and going out in public right after the social distancing guidelines were introduced. Over the past few weeks, he has taken to social media and national television to slam social distancing guidelines, saying that it's ruining Brazil's economy and urging local governments to abandon their strategies of closing schools and businesses. He calls those strategies scorched earth. He's blamed the media for spreading hysteria. And there are rumors that he's planning to fire his healthcare minister, who has taken a serious stance toward this disease. And so do you think that all of that behavior on Mr. Bolsonaro's part is a bid to, to save the economy without respect to the human cost? At first, it seemed like Bolsonaro was simply following in the footsteps of Donald Trump and putting Brazil's economy ahead of its public health. However, in recent days, other leaders like Trump have seemed to grasp the seriousness of this disease. Bolsonaro isn't there yet. He's still talking about how Brazilians need to go back to work and how the economy is still struggling from the effects of a recession a few years ago. There is some truth to that. It's going to be really difficult for all of the Brazilians who will lose their jobs and the government isn't able to provide the kind of economic stimulus that you see in Britain or the U.S., it's going to be especially difficult for informal workers who make up about half of Brazil's employed population. Well, that's the other question. Given a president who's thumbing his nose at the very idea of taking all this seriously, how are the people of Brazil responding? Recent polling suggests that the vast majority of Brazilians support social distancing and don't want the economy to suddenly spring back into full fashion. For the most part, in middle-class and wealthy neighborhoods in Sao Paulo, the streets are empty and quiet, and most Brazilians are taking quarantine very seriously. That picture changes once you enter the favelas, informal settlements that are home to around 13 million people here in Brazil. Social distancing's really hard, partly because people live in cramped quarters— and partly because a lot of them depend on the money they make every single day to put food on the table. And so in that sense, it's very much like the story we've been hearing about elsewhere in the world where COVID will ultimately hit the, the poorest the hardest. That's right. And when I visited Parisopolis, a favela here in Sao Paulo that's home to 100,000 people, it was striking how much activity was on the streets. Businesses were open, people were selling food, people were gathering. And when I talked to them, they said, of course we're scared, but we don't have any other option. I spoke to a man named Leo who has a tiny barber shop. And he tried shutting down for a couple days, but couldn't pay his bills. 
He's now opened up and has a rule that only five people can be in this tiny barbershop at the same time. But he told me he's terrified, knows he should be wearing a mask, knows he could get sick. But he really doesn't have any other way to make money. And so in that sense, is there any public health policy that's different for the favelas because they present a, a different challenge? Well, one of the first things I saw when I visited Parizopolis was a sign from the health ministry that said something like, respect the quarantine guidelines. This is not the same thing as a vacation, which really doesn't speak to the reality of favelas. Instead, the local neighborhoods association is mounting a really impressive effort to try to prepare They have hired their own private ambulance system and are appointing young people to serve as street presidents and check in on residents to make sure they have enough food to eat and aren't showing symptoms of coronavirus. And they've even taken over a couple of government schools and are preparing them as quarantine zones so people who get sick don't have to risk their families. All of this shows that people living in favelas knew even before COVID came to Brazil that they couldn't depend on the government. They've realized that they have to take COVID-19 into their own hands. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. To get a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist, a trusted source of information and, well, intelligence for 175 years. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. If you have to stay inside, it's tempting to spend quite a lot of time binge-watching box sets... Good morning, everyone. Good morning, baby. ...and eating and maybe drinking with abandon. But being under quarantine can prey on the mind, and after a while, plenty of people crave something a little more wholesome. As people are locked down at home, they're looking for ways to stay sane, looking after their minds, but also looking after their bodies. Sasha Nauta is The Economist's public policy editor. And therefore, you've seen a real increase in online exercises. Stretching up, stretching up, stretching up. That's good. Stretching up, stretching up. Touching the toes. Left to right, left Right, we've got a three-minute warm-up. On the whole, there seems to be a real digital wellness boom, if you will. And how is the industry responding to that sudden surge in demand? 
You're seeing a lot of free stuff being thrown online. And we saw that before the COVID lockdown. But now both the volume as well as the expansiveness of stuff that's coming up is really going through the roof. And this is really catering to all ages. So for the very young, you've got Joe Wicks, who's this cheeky fitness trainer who's been posting videos online for quite a long time, but who's suddenly going through a huge boom. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to... Day number 10 of PE with, unfortunately, Joe couldn't make it today, so I've stepped in, I'm Spider-Man, and I'm going to give you an amazing workout. We are He's started this daily fitness class, PE class for kids, which is doing phenomenally well. And then on the other hand, you've got Diana Moran, known as the green goddess, who really led the wave of at-home fitness in the 1980s. I have actually got a couple of bottles with me that I might use later on. So if you've got a couple handy, find them. Or you could use maybe a can of beer or a couple of bags of sugar. Anyhow, let's start. And she's back with a slot on BBC Breakfast, particularly trying to motivate older people to keep moving. So it's really applying to all ages. That seems to have the physical health covered. What about the mental health you also mentioned? Mental health, similarly, you're seeing an increase in both apps downloaded as well as the time people spend on these types of apps. And you've got to think here about things that talk people through meditation or just help them calm down or do body scans. This is something which isn't completely out of the blue. You saw so-called mindfulness apps already growing. The top five, in fact, in 2018 grew by 85% in that year. So you're seeing an acceleration of that trend. Um, Headspace is a company that's particularly well known and in fact is making a lot of its material free now for people who work in the healthcare industry as well as some more limited stuff to all. They saw in the last week of March a 19-fold jump in a calming exercise as well as a 14-fold jump in an exercise known as reframing anxieties. So both with physical fitness as well well, with people looking after their mental health, you see a real rise in people wanting to be part of something by watching it or taking part in it live. Um, in fact, on YouTube, you've seen videos with with me in the title. So, for example, cook with me, exercise with me, even clean with me, jump up uh, by 600% since mid-March. So clearly people are looking to be alone together, if you will. About these industry trends and all of these sort of newly formed habits, do you get the feeling they will stick when the lockdowns end? Obviously, everybody who's on the winning end here is talking about an acceleration of something that was bound to happen. As a gym goer myself, I'm still looking forward to being elsewhere than just on my living room floor. And I'm pretty sure that goes for a substantial amount of people. Although, you know, that said, people who weren't doing much before this, particularly, say, the elderly, who may have been motivated by Miss Moran now, you know, may well be starting habits that they can keep up. I'm more convinced by the mental health and mindfulness apps. This may just give them that extra nudge into the mainstream. So it does depend on what the habit is. And what about the providers of these sorts of services before? I mean, namely bricks and mortar gyms that are currently standing empty. What what do you think the long-term effect will be on the industry that existed before all this? I think the industry is really suffering. The CEO of Pure Gym, a British, very large gym chain, has said that his company is burning about £9 million a week whilst his 
gyms stand empty. That's a fairly well-financed company. But if you're a small mom-and-pop gym or, you know, you don't have a good balance sheet, you're really in trouble. So I think, as so many industries, but I think the gym industry is really going to suffer on the back of this. And the question kind of is, will people flock to the surviving gyms or will they go to online providers? In any case, I'd say that this temporary weird world that we're in is starting to raise the question of what can you Zoom, right? What can you do through Zoom? And with that, I think it raises the bar for physical experiences. So we're trying all sorts of things through video calls right now. Some of them appear to work very well, others not at all. But in any case, I think for some things, it will raise the bar after COVID for do we really need to do this physically or can we meet virtually? And what about yourself? Are you availing yourself of of these new tools? Well, I'm very lucky to have got hold of some kettlebells. And for now, I'm managing to do a daily workout. But call me again in a few weeks to see if I've kept it up. Sasha, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. The COVID-19 pandemic is bringing immense uncertainty to citizens, governments and the global economy. Economist Radio is drawing on the expertise of our international network of correspondents to report on the crisis. On the science... The more you understand about the mechanism of a virus, the more places that there are that you can glue it up. On the economics... The banks are in a really interesting position for this crisis because last time they were maybe the cause of turmoil and this time they could be one of the arms through which the impact of the crisis is dulled. And on the politics of COVID-19... Some worst-case scenarios have a very large number of people dying. That is going to trigger very, very grave conversations about whose fault this is. For the latest on the pandemic and more, join us on Economist Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. In the end, it would take a Frenchman to revolutionise fine dining in England. When the chef Michel Roux first arrived in London in the 1960s, he peered into restaurants finding a spectacle. He looked through the window and there he saw to his extreme horror that people were eating English peas on a plate and these peas were gigantic to his eye. They were as big as quail's eggs and they were fluorescent green. And in that moment he thought, Good heavens, is it ever going to be possible to teach these people to eat well? And in fact, trying to teach them how to eat well was the whole reason he was there, because his brother Albert had decided he was going to revolutionise dining in Britain, and he needed his brother's help. They'd always had an interesting relationship. Albert was the older brother, the six or seven years older, He was little and dark and fairly bustling, very energetic, entrepreneurial character. Michel was more laid back, much handsomer, taller. They were almost bound to be chefs, both of them, because their father was a charcutier in Burgundy. And so they fell into cooking almost naturally. When Albert went off to become an apprentice to a pastry chef a few years later, Michel decided he would do that too. And then when Albert went to London, 
Michel followed him. So he was always following the track of his brother's life. It just always seemed the right way to go somehow. They were tremendously successful. They bought a 90-seater restaurant in Lower Sloan Street and called it Le Gavroche, which means the urchin. It was certainly not an urchin sort of place. It was extremely expensive. Their whole philosophy was to teach the British that you didn't need to cook from frozen or from meals you'd prepared ages in advance. You could cook a la minute, you could cook fresh. And that was how it took off. It was so unusual. People were gobsmacked by it. <laughs> they had never seen anything like that before. And it became the first restaurant in London, indeed in Britain, to win a Michelin star. It won three Michelin stars. And eventually they expanded their empire. They bought a former pub at Bray in Berkshire, which was called the Waterside Inn. And that was the restaurant that Michel in particular became associated with. His particular skill had been as a pastry chef. He loved the precision of desserts. He loved the way you could be a bit flamboyant with them as well and decorative. When he was a private chef for a while to Celine de Rothschild, he became famous for his omelette souffle Rothschild, which sounds absolutely amazing. It involves a puree of dried apricots and Cointreau and a good deal of beaten egg white. And I imagine that the aromas you get when you plunge your spoon into it are absolutely exquisite. To the combination of the brothers, he brought precision and exactness, and also a sense that there should always be a certain etiquette about fine dining in a restaurant. So he expected guests to wear ties and to look generally smart and he once nearly turned away the rolling stones when they appeared because they looked pretty untidy. The two brothers had a television show for a while in the late 80s which was very entertaining because of this sort of tension and friendly rivalry between them all the time. Give a lovely light a gamey flavour into that leg of lamb, which you, I think you forgot to mention. Really? Very important did you put the butter into that? I did. I don't I trust did. you too much. No, no, I did put the butter. But on the other hand, one point which is, I think, very important. And in that show, everything is kind of popped into a pan with sizzling butter. So it's <laughs> cholesterol heaven. He did not change with the styles. He remained resolutely old-fashioned that the best sort of cuisine was classic French. So when cuisine got a little bit lighter and butter was frowned on, he was still using lashings of butter in all his recipes. He felt that the best cuisine was this classic French style, and it was certainly the, the cooking of another age. He always felt that he hadn't changed London as much as he would like to. I mean, there were more three-star Michelin restaurants there. He thought that there was a huge range of international cuisine in London, which was quite impressive. He felt that Britain had made a lot of progress, but there was still quite a long way to go. And in particular, he never felt that the English were cooking their peas in the right way. They should cook them in butter, not water. 
Anne Rowe on Michelle Roux, who's died aged 78. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And we'll see you back here tomorrow. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.